Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. We now join the theatre's associate director and your host, Hamish Peary. Welcome to this month's Travcast. The Travcast is our monthly writer's conversation where I get the opportunity to sit in a room and feel the breath of a writer on my cheeks and learn about what it means to be a writer. And this month, as part of our 50th birthday anniversary celebration, I'm with a writer who is a painter, a playwright, a screenwriter for the small and silver screen a director, and his work can only be described as consistently seminal to the Scottish cultural canon. John Byrne, welcome and hello. Thank you. <laughs> 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 uh, that, was, that was well done. That was all right, wasn't Congratulations, it? Congratulations. Thank you. That we yeah. were a bit nervous that it was going to take a few goes, but we did it first time. Oh, that was good. That was Thank good. you so much for being here, John. He wishes us a real pleasure. Yeah. Um, first thing I'd like to sort of talk about is, would you say, did you, so as a painter, where did those first ideas, where did painting bleed into playwriting? Well, I've, I'm not sure if it wasn't the other way around because I was always uh, writing from uh, a young age. I used to do, uh, we used to do uh, little parodies of, Poetry on the, on the wireless, you know, the Scottish Home Service and stuff like that. And I used to do parodies of him uh, doing parodies. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was ridiculous. At what age uh, were you then? The what? How old were you then? I was eight or nine, you know. <laughs> and then uh, later in our teens, we used to do, with pals, we used to do uh, local news items, you know, write them down and entertain ourselves. Total parochialism. And uh, which I loved, I loved parochialism, you know. Uh, like, uh, for example, uh, there was a chip pan blaze in uh, Ingle Street, which is in Paisley. <laughs> Any reference to Paisley with your pals was, was just you're rolling on the floor, Ingle Street. And the uh, Paisley Fire Brigade were soon there and had a, a good blaze going, you know, and that kind of thing, and, and boxing matches and stuff. Uh, for the Paisley Express and uh, the Bulletin, <laughs> all these dog defunct newspapers. Anyway, that's how you entertained yourself. And then uh, I got a Grundig tape recorder when I was 14, I think. And uh, yeah, you used to interview one another, just like we're doing now or you're doing with me, and uh, pretend to be other people. And we'd be play it back. And it was the first time one had ever heard one's voice. I was astonished. You know, it's so uh, all-embracing now, you know, recording and, and God, infants making films on other laptops and cutting them together and stuff like that. Uh, but So this was a revelation to me, a real-to-real tape recorder. And uh, so that, that uh, went on to... Uh, when I went to art school, I would do things in the margin of my sketchbook, you know, little written things. And uh, one day, uh, this is, I think it was in third year, 
at art school. I was still doing it for, entirely for more amusement. And Wally Armour, who was the head of painting, said, we found one of your, your sketchbooks which you left up in my studio up in the top. And I showed him to Percy Bliss, who was the head of uh, uh, the director of Glasgow School of Art. And uh, Percy Bliss was, was very tickled with him, you know, because there were the anecdotes and, and bits and pieces, marginalia. Uh, but they weren't about, they didn't come me in, in apart from uh, pure amusement. And uh, so when he, he retired, as director, just after I went to Italy on a scholarship to Perugia, and uh, he retired, and they asked him the Glasgow Herald what students he would, he, and he mentioned Alistair Gray and John Byrne as the, and both of us were painter writers, artist writers, you know, visual artists and writers, and those are the only two he mentioned, looking for great things from us. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you, Percy, but <laughs> no, and he was he was a great chum. Not a great chum, he wasn't a bosom buddy or anything, but he was very he took me under his wing and he used to write to me when I was in Perugia and I used to write to him. I mean he retired to Windy Hill was the name of his house. And he was one of a trio who were at the Royal College altogether. There was uh, uh Edward Bodden, Eric Rebellius and Percy Bliss were the three three threesomes, and we know of uh, Eric Rebellius, who was a wonderful man. He was, killed, he, he was shot down during the, just 1943-44, and he was a brilliant, brilliant artist, as was Edward Borden. Edward Borden went on to live to a great age, and uh, wonderful decorative uh, painters, and Percy Bliss was the odd man out, but there is a book coming out on them uh, by a private Press, the Police Press, which is, uh, produces beautiful books. And I only realised that he knew, he had known Eric, it'd be great chums Eric Revillis and Edward Borden when I bought a second-hand book from Chelsea Town Hall at a book fair, and it was by Percy Bliss about Eric Revillis. So that was really good. Uh, so when you got that recommendation, was he describing you as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a visual artist and as a writer? Aye, yeah, both. Yeah. Because he, he was hugely amused. He was a very good lecturer. We occasionally get lectures from him. They bring in Marilyn Monroe into the lecture and stuff like that of the Renaissance. And uh, it was a. In those days, it was a slight oddball, but I mean, very, very uh, uh, outwardly, uh, very traditional. And did that give you the confidence to start to think about, to formulate complete plays? No, because I didn't think about it then. I never took it really seriously at all. No. Uh, it was only later on, and I thought back to the, the first job I had before going to art school, which was in, uh, uh, with Stoddard's in the Eldersley, which was uh, a carpet factory. And uh, I left school as uh, in mid-term in fifth year, uh, having told various teachers that they could teach in front of the whole class <laughs> and uh, had to leave. So I left and uh, I went to, there was a guy in Paisley called uh, Mr Brown, I didn't know his first name, but he did the big posters for the Last Gala and the Kelburn and they were hand-painted, they were like Indian posters. Now, you know, those big, huge hand-painted with all the stars in them, you know, for the, the, for the movies. 
And so I went to see him, and he's a miserable bastard. And he recommended that I go and see uh, Walter Barton, uh, or Bartram, rather, Walter Bartram, who was from Leeds, and he was the chief designer at Stoddard's. So I went to see him, and he and I, with my portfolio uh, of bits and pieces, and he, he said, oh, God, this is wonderful. Come back and, and uh, start tomorrow morning. And he, he put me in, he gave me, a, I went in and I thought, oh God. Because there were two design rooms then, uh, 67 designers, carpet designers, sketchers, uh, and people that uh, do the patterns. And I thought, oh, that's great, I'm going to be sitting at a desk and be a designer. He gave me a brown dust coat and put me into the slab room to grind out colour. And the guy I met there was uh, Jim Rafferty, uh, who we'd been at school together, but he was in junior secondary at that time. Uh, St Mun's Academy was uh, the only Catholic secondary school in the whole of Renfrewshire, which is quite a big place. So we're all the gangsters and hooligans and uh, uh, people uh, from all the schemes and from all the parts of Renfrewshire there. So there was a junior secondary, which you didn't mix with, and a senior secondary, and I was in senior secondary. So we didn't really know each other, but we knew each other by sight, Jim Rafferty, and he told me about his young brother who was uh, 10 years young. He, he would be about eight by the, at that time. He says, a really good, uh, I could hear, uh, Gerald. And uh, we'd bought a, a, a banjo, three-string banjo from a lassie who worked in, uh, Martha Fulton, who worked in the design room and hid it behind the coats, the dust coats, and everything, behind the slab room door. And we used to play chords, three-string chords. Uh, and, and Jim asked if he could take it home uh, for uh, Gerald to play. And uh, so that was Jerry Rafferty's inspiration for And then I got to know Jerry. But I thought... At the time, there were so many oddballs in this working in this place. I thought of writing. Uh, late, much later on, it came to me I should write a short story or something, and uh, right. with all these. And I started off. I got half a page done, and then uh, in the interim, we'd going going to the theatres. The citizens we used to go and see, and I would sleep through every production of uh, ever and at the citizens theatre because I was all so tired. And uh, it would snore, start snoring, have my nose pinched. <laughs> and uh, and they were wonderful. So that was an introduction to the, the theatre, really. And uh, but I never, ever thought to write, except this short story. I got happy down the pages, and I thought, God, that's no... It didn't feel right. Then, uh, funnily enough, I was getting... By the time I was about 20... Five, or 24, 25, I was getting plays and players for some reason and reading it every week, every right. couple of weeks it came out. It was every month, I can't remember. It was a guy who produced all seven magazines, opera, uh, opera and uh, singers and, and books and bookmen, plays and players, and uh, from a basement in Pimlico or somewhere. And I used to get plays and players. I'd never thought to write a play yet. Uh, and then uh, I did write it and I wrote it in secret. I, this was much later when I was about, God, what, what year was that? For, uh, 70, 75, I think. 
And I wrote a play called Writer's Cramp. And again, in a, while I was painting for the Portal Gallery in my garage outside the, at the back of our bungalow in Renfrewshire. So this is after art school? This is after art yeah, school. you're now a professional after, artist. I'm now a professional. Yeah, because it was either getting the sack or handing in my resignation. So I resigned before, <laughs> before Bill Murray could say, you're sacked. <laughs> uh, and then I went home and uh, broke the news that I'd, uh, I was now a full-time painter. No money or anything. But anyway, uh, I'd sent off a wee picture. This is such a, uh, a well-known story. Uh saying it was paints by my father, one of which I'd done under the desk at, when I'd gone back to, uh, after art school, to work in the design room of the same company, uh, Stoddard and Eldersley. I've been working STV before that. And I painted a wee tiny picture in a naive style and sent it off to the, the Portal Gallery, which I'd found in a magazine, Observer Colour magazine, and said... Uh, this is a painting by my father. I wonder if it's of any interest in it. They went, it's quite interesting. Could you send us some more? So I did another six and sent them down. Said my father was a busker, which was true during the Depression. He was a busker and sang in the back doors of Govan. Anyway, uh, eventually I started uh, writing in a sketchbook letters from somebody called... Francis Seneca McDaid, and they started off at school. And uh, Alice, who was my wife then, uh, said, why don't you put scenes in between the letters? So I thought, well, that's a good idea. So I did that. And uh, in the, it was just as a, the time the Third Eye Centre was starting, uh, Tom McGrath, whom I met and we worked on the Great Northern Willie Boot Show, in the first Mayfest in Glasgow, 1972, I think it was. Uh, and it was directed by Tony Parker, who's now a great filmmaker and does... Well, anyway, that, I caught the bug there, I think. Uh, and I, I was not very uh, ordered in my thinking, mm. so I had no idea I was going to write a play. <laughs> but I'd caught the bug. <coughs> and uh, Tom McGrath... Uh, was going to see, he was a piano player at the Great Northern Millie Boot Show and, and, and a band leader. And uh, he got the job for starting up the Third Eye Centre, which is now the, what is it, uh, in Glasgow, the Contemporary Art Centre, CCAI. And at that time it was called the Third Eye Centre. Uh, and he was the organiser of it. And he wanted me to have the first painting show on it. And uh, what would it like for the opening ceremony? And, you know, the opening, I said, well, if you invite John Betjeman and, uh, uh, who was it, The Who, I think, something like that, and stuff like that. And I, I said, there's a play called, because I'd been getting plays and players, yeah. there's a play, called, a play called Teeth and Smiles by David Hare. And I think Helen Byrne was the singer in it. You know, this is, this is 1975. And I discovered that David Hare, because I always told you who their agent was, and I phoned up and said, Margaret Ramsey Limited, uh, St. Martin's, you know, thing, be, uh, court, whatever it was called. So I phoned her up and said, uh, I'm phoning to inquire about uh, the rights to David Hare's, I want to do a production in Glasgow. She said, 
I was going to the West End. Boom, phone went down. That was it. So when I came to write uh, Writer's Cramp, uh, I phoned her up, because that was the only agent I knew. Uh, she called herself a play agent, Peggy Ramsey. And I phoned her up. He says, oh, well, send it down to me, darling. And so I sent it off, sent a copy off. And she says, this is wonderful. I'm going to, I got a postcard back and a spidery writing, which you could hardly read. And she says, I'm sending this to the Royal Court, the Tricycle, the uh, the Bush Theatre, and we'll get it ordered. It's wonderful. So that was, and in, in, uh, I spoke to her and I said, God, that's wonderful. And she says, well, I'm going on holiday for 10 days. And I, I expect you've written another play. Goodbye. Phone went down. So 10 days later, I, I phoned her up. And uh, anyway, that uh, didn't happen. There was a there was a Cajun band called Cado Bell in Glasgow at the time, and this was 1975, the opening of the Third Eye Centre. And uh, usual thing, uh, somebody stepped in and said, "Oh, he doesn't deserve to open this thing, and why don't you open it with Joan Early? You know, who was then dead by." Uh, and so uh, Tom caved in, God rest his soul. And so I didn't get to open the place, so that was all kaput. But in the meantime, it served its purpose for me getting that. Uh, and I didn't tell him that I was writing anything. And uh, so I phoned up Peggy Ramsey the day she got back from holiday and said, uh, I've written a, a, a real play with a beginning, a middle and an end, which was a slap voice. And she said, how fucking bourgeois, darling. Wonderful, send it off to me. So I sent that off. Writer's Cramp was always her favourite, which she adored because it was kind of anarchic and, and stupid. And then we put on Writer's Cramp at the Festival Fringe in 1977. And I was painting a big... Was that at the Trevors? No, no, it was at Calton Studios. And the reason we got Calton Studios is because it had just been bought by... What was his name? Oh, God... Steve Clark Hall, right. film producer, who happened to be winching, as we say in Scotland, John Betts' sister. Right, yeah. He eventually got married. You know, so he had just bought Carlton Studios. And we were going to do it at the Travis, Travers uh, bar. Yeah. Just with uh, Billy Patterson. And uh, he was, of course, had been in the 784, which I'd uh, designed the, the big book for, big pop-up book, as Cheviot Snack and the Black Back All. So I'd got to know the three of them, uh, Billy Patterson, uh, Alex Norton, and John Bett. And John Bett said, well, if we can be in the show, they were all talking about it among themselves. And Billy Patterson had done a little excerpt on the wireless of it, a kind of truncated version of it. And uh, eventually... They played all the other parts, and Billy Patterson played uh, Francis Seneca McDade, and we did it at Carlton Studios. And uh, the first show, the fire brigade came and said, no, you can't open. There's not enough exits and everything else, so we had to cancel that show. Fortunately, it was to our uh, great uh, advantage that we had to start at the, the fall-in. We had, no, we had a press showing, a press showing of it, and it was just the press that were there. Couldn't show it to a public audience and couldn't charge for it. And it was the first lead-off in the Scottish room. It was Duncan Campbell, 
who reviewed it and he gave it a rave, absolute rave. So we're stowed out and I had every uh, producer in London phone me up to bring it to the tricycle, the open, uh, the open space, the bush, every, every small theatre. And we eventually chose the bush. And uh, I'm jumping about a bit here. Uh, in the meantime, the Traverse had the Slaboy script. We started off 28 pages long. It's a musical with Jerry Rafferty doing songs for it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I was, my timing was just right because Chris Parr changed the whole ethos of the Traverse, which before that was called itself a world theatre and did things from all around the world, except from Scotland. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and Chris Parr, uh, to our great advantage, said, I'm going to do plays for, uh, by playwrights living in Scotland or Scottish playwrights. So otherwise I wouldn't have got it on anywhere. I'd sent it to Giles Habergill and he said, we don't have a Scottish company. We've got only one Scottish person in the company, uh, as you know, and we do international work. And he says, why don't you send it to the Travers? And I sent it to Chris Parr. And it was D uh, Peter Lichtenfels. I think Chris was away doing some, away for a couple of months or something. So Peter Lichtenfels said, oh yeah, I really like it. And, and uh, But when Writer's Tramp was a hit, uh, I phoned up Peter Lichtenfels and said, I want my playback, I want uh, Slab Boy's back. He said, no, 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 I'll phone you back, I'll phone you back. This was in the back of the success of Writer's Cramp. They phoned me back within the hour and said, uh, 7th of May or the 3rd of May or whatever it was next year, 78. And that's how I got it on. Otherwise, I'd have been lo uh, loitering around. Anyway, that was my fortunes changed after that. And Plays and Players uh, printed the whole of Writer's Cramp in their uh, Christmas edition. So that was me. I was, I was launched. So that's interesting. It's all, you described that fact that you were getting writers, uh, plays and players, but you didn't quite know why. No, for I didn't some know, reason. I, I and that seems to be what made you go on that journey. Because if it yeah. wasn't for that, you wouldn't have found out about David Hare. You wouldn't have made that phone call who forced you to go on no. holiday. Da, 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 da. And I had seen Alan Bennett's 40 years on uh, at the Apollo Theatre, 1967. Yeah. And it took 10 years for the penny to drop because I was. If John Gilgood was playing the headmaster, and it was just wonderful. And I thought. I thought unconsciously, thinking back now, it was unconsciously, uh, the audience all went up as one, you know, when it was laughter. And I thought, God, that's wonderful, but the penny didn't drop for 10 years. <laughs> and uh, you can always, if you do drama, there's, there's, you know, people are watching, there's no reaction really. But if you're doing comedy, which is drama plus, <laughs> drama extra, uh, you can always tell. And do you find that a lot more satis a lot more satisfying when you know? Well, it's the only thing I can do. It's the only way. It's the way I think. And the blacker it is, and the truer it is, the funnier it is. I had people coming out who had never been to see it in their lives before came to the Travers, and uh, people coming out going, "God, I shouldn't have been laughing at that. It was so dark." But they couldn't help themselves. I want a purpose in writing is to have people laughing and crying at exactly the same time. And I've been changing their lives, and there's so many people who say to change their life. Yeah. And is that your. Nothing less. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's the. See, there, that's a really clear 
That's quite a clear aim, isn't it, with everything you write? Yeah, yeah. But I don't know what... I know how I, I, I'm going to start out. I've got all the characters, and I know how it's going to open. I've no idea how it's going to end. Right. Not a clue. And I set hairs and run on the ground. And I've always had the greatest good luck, unconsciously, uh, of running all the hairs and, and you're setting the hairs and then coming across in dialogue uh, because everything... Every piece of dialogue I write carries two, three bits of information concealed. There was, I was accused of having no narrative, no plot by critics who just go and watch it and, and go see all the surface stuff and all the funny stuff. And, and normal people going to see my plays get it, you know, get there's a story, there's a hidden narrative right through the bloody thing. At the end you come out and you go, God, I'm wrung out. And where did you learn that skill? Of I didn't learn it anywhere. Just going to the theatre and, and watching the and, and loving theatre. I was inspired by initially by Bernard Shaw's Man and Superman, which I saw on television. So much so, I went to the library and got it out, and then went, oh, I, I saw the layout of it, how it was laid out, and I had no idea that was how a play was laid out on the page, and I marvelled at that. And uh, what was my other inspiration? Well, 40 years on, uh, Man and Superman. Uh, I think that was it. And do you think you approach, this is a really sort of nose-on question, and I apologise for that. Do you think the way that you approach painting and the way that you approach playwriting has any similarities? Yeah, they're getting more and more similar. It's more like the same thing. Go on, talk to me about that. For the very fact that uh, now... I mean, in painting, I'm ruthless, and a, and a thing doesn't work. I, I sponge it out, rub it out. If something's white, I'll paint it black if it doesn't work. And so I that ruthlessness that in the theatre, I didn't indulge myself at all. I was very hard on myself. Uh, uh, rewriting. I mean, like Moss Hart said, a great uh, Broadway playwright, said there's no such thing as writing, there's only rewriting, and that's true. And when I went to, when the Slab Boys opened at the Traverse, it was draft 18, a complete draft. And I'm sorry for people now that start on a, a, a computer, which is the normal way to start. You wouldn't buy a typewriter. I was still working a typewriter, but you wouldn't buy one. It's too, e it's too easy. It's so easy. It's deceptively, uh, and you can cut and paste. But why, but is... Surely if you write the whole play to one end and then you go back for that next pass, is that uh, not then count as another, another draft? Why do you think it's too easy? Because you're sort of tinkering as you go and you have, you're not giving well, yourself you enough discipline. I, you don't tinker because you, you take out a whole page and rewrite the whole page to correct a couple of lines in it. You know, you have to do a, 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 you know, So you go over every line and, and get it and, and cut it to the bone get it, get it, and oh, tighter and tighter each and every time. A loose dialogue or dialogue of people's names, they annoy me in, in other people's stuff. If you go out of a, a theatre and you can't remember the, the characters' names, you're up a country. When you said to me, you just said then rather briefly that you always aim for 
tears, laughter, same time, and life-changing. What's the definition of life-changing theatre? And do you feel, as a writer, you have... Obviously, you do. Do you have a responsibility? Well, I don't feel a responsibility. It's just... I would do it for more entertainment. I mean, it's people... I, it's not my aim to do that. But that's a, it's a pretty high aim to try and do that, to change people's take in the world. And you can only do that by giving them your take in the world. You know, your personal take in the world. And uh, and you have to conceal it. You have to conceal it in dialogue, which is every word of which counts. And it's, it's, the funnier it is, the more truthful it is, and the more things you can conceal in that. You can hide all the narrative. I don't like... I'm less fond of mechanical things, whereas the mechanical plot is all plot. I like it to be hidden. You see it in films, old films, much better. Uh, like I was thinking the 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 uh, all about Eve just yesterday and how wonderful that was, uh, and how literate, without being showy literate, it's it's intelligent. I like intel, really intelligent stuff. If you had to give one word of advice or one sentence of advice to a to an, a younger writer, what would it be? Uh, be utterly yourself, totally and utterly yourself, and then if you don't succeed, that's <laughs> you already succeed. Because <laughs> you've got <laughs> yeah. an, honest, an honest turning point. Yeah, no, yeah. no, give up if you don't succeed. <laughs> if you don't have your first piece, <laughs> you're how not do doing you, it right. How do you switch off, John? Because obviously your mind's always working, thinking about ideas for plays, and then you've always got a studio, which must be a weight having a studio in your house, looming everything, going work, work, work. No, 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 but it's, I so love it, Hamish. Honestly, I'm up in the morning, the first thing, I, I was painting before I came from, uh, well, I had a, a slightly later uh, start, 10 o'clock. But I work every day, seven days a week, because I, I adore it, and I don't know what I'm going to do. It's the same with painting now, because that's what the... the the uh, playwright taught me a bit pain because one fed the other. Now it's uh, I'm I'm doing. Uh, in my youth, I was a teddy boy, and there were teddy boys around, and that's what I know. I mean, I don't know now about anything that goes on in the world, but at least I can do that from one experience. So I'm I'm doing stuff which is not nostalgic because it's all it's it's guys getting knifed and stuff like that and friends. You know, uh, so I'm doing Teddy Boys rather than uh, the miasma. You know, people carrying bottles of water about. What's I mean, I'm 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 astonished and amazed by the modern world. <laughs> Bamboozled by it at the same time. Thank you so much, John Ben. It's been a real pleasure. Here it was a, it was a pleasure for me. Thank you. Goodbye. No trouble at all. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. For more information, please log on to www.traverse.co.uk.